Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. So happy that you braved the cold weather, left your warm homes, the comfy of that situation to get in your cold automobile, to drive here, to get in this warm, toasty place. We're glad that you're here this morning. And for those of you who stayed home and watching us online, we really don't feel sorry for you, but uh, we're glad that you have joined us together as you've invited us into your home. And those of you in the Cross Point Center, thank you as well for um, making um, space here by being a part of that service there. Before we begin this morning with any of our study, I just want to say that we every year we do twice a year what we call parent-child dedication. And yesterday we had such a parent-child dedication, and what you see on the screen. We can't show these on television, but you can see these on the screens are a number of children whose parents have made a commitment to bring them before the Lord. And we don't call it baby dedication. We call it parent-child dedication because the parents are making a commitment to raise their children according to the teachings of God's word. We do that twice a year here. We do it in January and we do it uh, sometime in the summer, I think around Mother's Day. And so if you have any kids that you would like to make a commitment to raise them before the Lord, they can be newborn, they can be 21. I mean, just bring them um, and we'll pray over them, okay? Um, but, but we do this twice a year. Now, one thing we want to remind you of is today is the National Sanctity for Human Life Sunday. And this is a day that is set aside for churches to pray um, um, for the well-being of people. We recognize that every single human being is created uniquely in the image of God. Every single person is a an image bearer of Almighty God. Those are from the oldest to the youngest and those who are still in the womb. They're all created in the image of God for his specific purpose. Now, the sanctity of human life is not just simply about the unborn. We believe that it extends all the way to life, from the womb to the tomb. And now there are many people who will accuse the church of saying, you know what, you only care about the unborn. Once they're born, you don't care about them. That may be true for a lot of groups. That is not true of who we are. We have made a commitment at Scotts Hill that we will see the sanctity of human life all the way to the end. We support Lifeline Pregnancy Center. We support uh, children's homes where we can pour into the lives of children. We support homeless ministries where we're on the street taking care of vulnerable, underprivileged people. We support elderly situations where we go into their homes and bring meals and pray with them. We support battered women who are struggling to get their lives back together. We at Scotts Hill have a number of strategic partners where we firmly believe from the womb to the tomb. And we want you to know that every dollar that you give to Scotts Hill, 10% of what you give goes to missions, to those kinds of frontline ministries that are very important, not locally only, but nationally and globally. But since it is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, 
This is an issue in America, the issue of abortion. It's one of the most important, significant moral issues that our country is dealing with. Let me just give you a number here, 63 million plus. That's the number of children who have been aborted since Roe v. Wade, 63 million. We can't really wrap our head around that figure, so let me help you. This is a population four times the size of New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Houston combined. That's how many. How does that break down daily? The number of daily abortions is equivalent to a 9-11 every single day in America. And so while we understand that this is an issue, we need to understand what God's heart is when it comes to matters such as this. Um, God's word says in Psalm 33, verses 13 through 15, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. Every human being is valuable to God. And so here's what I want to do. I want to lead us in a word of prayer this morning before we dig into our study of Romans. And I want to pray on behalf, specifically, of the unborn. And I, would you join me in that? Father, we thank you for your grace upon us as a nation. And Father, we confess the sin of not seeing the importance of human life from conception on. And so, Father, we ask that you would work in the hearts and the minds of our leaders, that you would give men and women the conscious awareness of the value of every human life. And Father, we pray for those individuals who have unexpected pregnancies. And I pray, Father, that you would put people into their paths to help them to see that abortion is not the only answer. But Father, you would provide for them means of care and even that child being adopted to a family who has been praying for a child. Father, we pray for the Lifeline Pregnancy Centers that are frontline ministries we ask, Father, that you would give them great resources as they continue to minister to both men and women who are caught in the unexpected situations of a pregnancy. We ask, Father, that for those mothers who have aborted children, that you would speak graciously and peacefully into their lives and you would help them to see that they can recover from this and that, Father, you can bring great mercy and grace to them. I thank you for those who have experienced abortion in their life and have been set free from the guilt and the shame of that. And now, Father, that you use them in incredible ways to encourage others. Father, I pray for our church, Scotts Hill, that we would be passionate and compassionate for those who have suffered in such difficult times. I pray, Father, that we would be a beacon of light for those who are struggling and Father, that we would volunteer our times of frontline ministries. We would give our dollars to support. We would minister to people who are struggling in such a way that our community will know that we all struggle with issues of sin, but it's only through your grace that we can be forgiven. And Father, we can be restored to you. Help us to be sensitive to the needs and care for those needs. And Father, you... Do a mighty work of protection. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we all grow up asking questions, don't we? I just ask you a question. 
And uh, we know that questions are very important. We ask questions all the time because questions help us get information. Some questions are good questions. Some questions are silly questions. Some questions are just plain dumb questions. But one of the questions that, um, that exist in, in our lives is what we call rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is a question that is asked that we know has a specific answer, so it doesn't even need to be answered. And we are surrounded by rhetorical questions every single day. Let me give you a few examples of rhetorical questions. Is the Pope Catholic? That's one. How about this one? Is the sky blue? Or this one, what were you thinking? Or this one, were you even thinking? Or this one, are you crazy or just plain stupid? These are, these are rhetorical questions that we can ask and we really don't have an answer to them. Now, when we grew up, we learned something very important as children, that our moms were experts with rhetorical questions, weren't they? They could ask some of the greatest rhetorical questions. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna give you some that I heard from my childhood, and I wanna see if you've heard some of the same, okay? If you heard this one, when I read it, just raise your hands there, say amen, I heard that one. How about this one? Do I look like the maid? The answer, there's no answer. You better not answer that one. How about this one? Do you want to put your eye out? Yeah, I've got an extra one. I didn't think I needed that one. Or do you think money grows on trees? How many of you have heard that one? Or this one, eat your food. Do you want kids in China to starve? I have never figured that one out. Or this one, do you want me to knock you into the middle of next week? This one's pretty bad. I'd rather be there next week. Or this last one, do you want to be a failure for the rest of your life? <laughs> these are rhetorical questions, and I don't remember ever asking or answering these with a positive yes. I just sat there and listened because you knew it's not an answerable question. We're in Romans chapter eight, and we're coming to the conclusion of the greatest chapter in the book of Romans, the most encouraging chapter in the book of Romans, and perhaps in all the scripture. And in Romans chapter eight, the apostle Paul is encouraging us with one encouragement after another. And in this chapter, he is reminding us of how great the love of God is and how wonderfully we are blessed because of God's love for us. And all through this chapter, one layer after another are just encouragements after encouragements after encouragements. And he concludes the chapter with five rhetorical questions. John Stott calls them unanswerable questions. There are five rhetorical questions that he's going to ask, and each of the questions leads to the undeniable fact of God's incredible love for us. So as we close out chapter 8, let this message this morning be so encouraging to you. If you've been encouraged through chapter eight, this particular closing, these nine verses, what we call Paul's famous hymn, is all about God's love for you. And each question gives us proof of God's incredible love. So we begin in chapter eight, verse 31. The first question he asks is not one of the rhetorical ones, but he's getting us started. He says, what then shall we say to all of these things? What are all of these things? All of these things, many scholars believe, is everything Paul had said up to this point. 
From the beginning of Romans to the end of chapter eight, all of these things. What were all of those things? Well, the fact that we were all under the judgment and the wrath of God. We all deserved a separation from God for all of eternity, but God so loved us that he gave his son. His son went to the cross to die in our place. And there on the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God and he appeased God's wrath, and by that, God condemned sin in his flesh, and every person that surrenders and yields their life to Jesus is credited as righteous. They are justified before God's eyes, which is a fabulous truth, and not only that, we are washed in the grace of God, which is greater than all of our sin, and that we have no condemnation because of what Christ has done for us. We are filled with the Spirit of God. we got the future hope of glory before us, and we have been foreknown, we have been predestined, we have been called, we have been justified, and we have been glorified. All of these things, and as magnificent as they are, Paul is about to give us five more incredible layers of encouragement. Isn't that wonderful? He's going to close out with something of the fabulous, magnificent love of God. And because of all of these things, I'm going to take you on a stair step of five steps with five questions just to bring you to the pinnacle of the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's what he says, the first rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, the answer to that is nobody. Or a better answer is it doesn't matter who's against you. If God is for you, who can be against you? Now, question one speaks of the significance of God's love for us. And many times we read this verse and we don't really understand the significance of this. That child of God, God is for you. He is for you. Now I want you to see the end of this statement that he says. He says, who can be against us? Well, that's not the emphasis of the question. You and I both know that there are people against us. We know that there are people who don't like us. And we know that there are people, let's be honest, that we don't like either. It reminds me of the man who went to the doctor and the doctor told him, he said, man, I got bad news for you. You have a severe case of rabies and you're not gonna live more than a week. And the man said, there's nothing you can do. He says, there's nothing I can do. You are on your deathbed even now. The man said, do you have a piece of paper and a pen? He says, yeah, and he gives it to him and he's just writing furiously. The doctor says, are you writing your last will and testament? He said, no, I'm making a list of all the people I'm gonna bite. Now, we, we all know that there are people who are against us and there are people we are against. But that's not the point here. The emphasis is on the front part of this. If God is for us. And in the Greek, the word if is not the best word because that makes it sound conditional. The best word is because God is for you. Believer, listen to me. In Christ Jesus the omnipotent creator of all things is for you. The one who spoke the universe into being with a single word is for you. The one who has known you from eternity past is for you. 
He is there for you. Now, there are a lot of people who will say, God is for me. A terrorist will say, God is for me. The man who blows up a, an abortion center might say, God is for me. There have been a lot of humans who have done some bad things that said, God is for me. What he's talking about here is those who are in Christ Jesus. God is for you. He is rooting for you. He is pulling for you. He is watching you. He is filled with joy as you live your life. He is for you. And he is for you even when you fail. He is for you even when you stumble. He is for you even when you doubt him. He is always for you. And the significance of that is the God of the universe is pulling for you. I want you to think of the Old Testament character, Joseph. I mean, you see in Joseph, he was, man, he, so many people were against Joseph. His brothers hated him, but God was for him. They threw him in a pit, but God was with him. They sold him to the Ishmaelites who sold him to Egypt, but God was with him. He ends up in Potiphar's house. God is with him. Mrs. Potiphar accuses him of wanting to molest her. God is with him. He ends up in jail. God is with him. He's forgotten for two full years. God is with him. He's pulled out to interpret Pharaoh's dream. God is with him. There's never a time in Joseph's life where God is not with him. And let me tell you, believer, the significance of God's love for you is he is always for you. Growing up as a parent, I loved going to my kids' sporting events. And when my, I'd watch my kids, I'd watch Ryan, he'd play golf or football or baseball or basketball. Leslie would play volleyball, soccer, basketball. No matter what they were doing, we'd go to these events. And man, I was a proud dad. I'd pull for them. When they would do something great, I'd stand up, yeah, way to go, Leslie. Great goal, way to shoot. Now, if she misses a pass, I don't say, mm, don't know that girl. <laughs> man, somebody needs to get a hold of her parents and straighten her up. You know, Ryan would hit a golf shot. Man, way to go, Ryan. Woo! Hits one in the sand trap. I don't know who that kid is. Man, his dad must not be good at golf. No. Even in the midst of those, you know what I'd say? That's all right. You'll get them next time. Come on, way to go. Yes, I'm so proud of you. Let me tell you what the Christian often thinks of God in heaven. We think of our father as sitting there with his arms folded and a scowl on his face looking for any opportunity to condemn us when we fail. But he is a loving father. Apart from Christ, he is your judge. In Christ, he is your father. And I can imagine God on the throne watching our lives saying, yes, that's the way I want you to pray. Yes, that's the way I want you to serve one another. Oh, I see that you stumbled there, but that's all right. That's all right. My spirit is going to bring you to a place of completion. Come on, get up. What would happen if you saw God as your father doing that to you every single day? He's for you. And if the world is against you, who cares? The God of the universe, his love is significant because he is always pulling for you. Now let's look at the second question he asked. We not only see the significance of God's love, but in the second question, he asked this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is my life verse. I memorized this verse when I was in college and I, I, I remember it and, and often quote it. He who did not spare his own son. When we get to question two, it speaks of the sufficiency of God's love. Not only do we see the significance of God's love in the first question, but in the second question, we're on the second step, we see the sufficiency of his love. Now again, he doesn't focus on the end of this verse, that how will he not also freely give us all things? That's not the emphasis. And we should be thankful that God doesn't give us every single thing we pray for. And because in his wisdom, as a loving parent, he protects us from certain things. But here's the point. The point is, Paul is taking a greater to lesser argument. He wants to talk about the greater thing and then the lesser thing. The greater thing is what he has given us in Christ. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The greatest thing he did was give us his son. The most costly gift was his son. And what did he do? He gave him up for us all. That phrase gave him up in the Greek literally means he delivered him over for us all. It is the same word that's used in the gospels to speak of Judas and his giving up Jesus, the priest and their giving up Jesus, and Pilate, his delivering Jesus over. But what we see in this passage that the person who gave up Jesus was not Judas for money, was not the priest for envy, was not Pilate for fear, but from God because of love. And God has given us the greatest gift in his son. There's nothing greater in all of heaven. There's nothing greater in all of eternity. God has given you the greatest gift for your salvation possible. And so if God has given the greatest gift in his son, everything else is secondary. So here's the point he's saying. If God is willing to give his son for your salvation, it is insane for us to think that he would withhold from us the things we need to live a faithful, fruitful Christian life. And he freely gives us all those things. If he's given us his son, he's not gonna withhold the other things that we need in life. Grace, endurance, patience, wisdom, needs. He's going to fulfill every one of those. Last summer, Chris and I went on a Mediterranean trip. She is a travel agent, and she's been planning this for a long time, and so she booked everything. She booked the airline tickets. She booked the uh, hotels while we were there. She booked the cruise. She booked all the excursions. She booked everything, and it cost thousands of dollars for us to do this. Now, suppose that all of this was booked, and we paid for all of this amount, and we're driving to RDU to get on a plane. Now, we have to park in the parking lot there and leave the car there for about 12, 14 days. Suppose I pull up into the parking lot and I realize it's going to cost $180 to park the car, which it did. And, 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 but I get there and I say, $180, no, nope, nope, nope. That's where I draw the line. No more. That's too much. It's ridiculous. $180 to park my car here. It's, it's a point. We're turning around. We're going home. The trip is off because of the $180. My wife would look at me and say, okay, drop me off here. I'll get the shuttle. 
I'll go to the Mediterranean and you can go home and babysit our car. (laughs) That would be absurd, wouldn't it? Because I spent the thousands of dollars for the trip, yet I wouldn't spend the 150 for the parking. And here's what we're seeing here. If God would not spare his son for his enemies, what makes you think he wouldn't pay for the parking for you too? He covers it all. And the sufficiency of his love for us is that when Jesus went to the cross, he gave the greatest gift and he is in no way going to withhold what you need for your Christian life. So his question number one is the significance of his love. His question number two is the sufficiency of his love. Now questions three and four, he brings us back into the courts. He brings us back into the the, the law courts and he starts using judicial language. And these two questions sound similar, but they're really different in nature. And each of these is so encouraging because not only do we see the significance of his love that is for you and the sufficiency of his love that he gives all things to you. Let me just say this. God God has way more invested in your salvation than you do because he's giving you his son. But here's the the third question that he asked. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, who's going to charge God's children of any crime? Who's going to bring any accusations against them? Now, we do know this, that people love to charge Christians for a number of different reasons. But this question speaks of the stability of God's love for us. Because regardless of what kind of charges people bring before God about believers, it never shakes his love for his people. Never. And it's always stable. And we see through history that Christians have been blamed for a lot of things. Nero blamed the Christians for burning down Rome. It wasn't true. We see that history blames Christians for the the inquisitions and for the holy wars. That wasn't true. The enemy blames Christians a lot for things. Our culture blames Christians if we hold to biblical, authoritative, absolute truth of being biased, of being racist, of being homophobic, of being transphobic, and every kind of phobia else that you can see. But will any of those stand? They will not stand. Why? Because it is God who justifies The person who is in Christ has been acquitted because of what Christ has done on the cross. The person who is in Christ, the God of the universe, the judge of all life, has brought the gavel down and said, innocent, absolutely free. There is no guilt. And when you've been justified in a court of law, you can never be charged with the same crime again. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, We will never stand before God or any court guilty. Now, does that mean Christians don't sin? Not at all. Christians sin. Christians do bad things. Christians can hurt people. But because we're in Christ, even in the midst of that, we're counted as righteous. God sees that we're justified and guiltless. Now, somebody might say, now, wait a minute, Phil. Are you telling me that once you become a Christian, You can live any way you want and God will never hold you accountable to it. Nope, that's not what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. If you are in Christ, you will not want to live any way you want. 
If you are truly in Christ, you have a new mindset, a new heart, a new direction, a new passion, a new goal, and you're going to seek to please the things of God. But even when you fail, and you will fail, God says, guiltless. I love the way John puts it in 1 John chapter 2. He says this, we write these things to you, little children, that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father who is Christ Jesus the righteous. In other words, John is saying this. The goal is don't sin. But the reality is you're going to sin. And when you do sin, your advocate, your defense attorney is Jesus Christ. And he stands before the Father. And when the enemy comes to bring a charge, Jesus says, nope, he is in me. And God says, justified. Nope, she has trusted me and is my follower. God says, guiltless. And nobody else can change what God has said. And that means this, that the stability of God's love for you will never change because in Christ, your sins have been condemned and you are guiltless for all of eternity. Because, does that mean you're righteous? No. It means you are credited with the righteousness of God and his love for you will never change. Now let's look at the fourth question. Who is it condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Where the other questions talk about significance, sufficiency, and stability, this question speaks of the security of God's love for every believer. That we can know that we are absolutely secure in him. There's a difference between somebody accusing you and condemning you. In this case, you are not condemned. And you will not be condemned. And he gives us four reasons why we're not condemned. He says, first of all, Jesus died for you. When he died for you, God condemned in his flesh your sin. Your sin was condemned in Christ. And then secondly, he rose from the dead. It was God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. This is really, really important. When Jesus raised from the dead, it proved that he was everything he claimed to be. But secondly, when Jesus rose from the dead, it demonstrated that God received his sacrifice as the means of satisfying God's wrath for your sin. And because of that, that there is no condemnation for you. Thirdly, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Every great king had at his right hand some person that would help him. And at the right hand of a king meant that there was access to unlimited power. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and has access to all authority. And not only that, he is seated at the right hand. And anywhere in the Bible, when a person sits, the work is finished. And here's the last thing. He is interceding for us. Right now, he's interceding for you. And when the enemy brings a charge against you, and the enemy wants to condemn you, when your own flesh wants to condemn you, the Lord Jesus is interceding on your behalf before the Father and calling your name that you are his. Louis Burkhoff wrote some encouraging words about this intercession. Here's what he says. He says, it's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we're often neglect to include in our prayers. 
And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. Listen, not only does Jesus have more invested in your salvation, he cares more about the success of your salvation than you do. And he is always praying. So we see the significance of his love. He's for you. We see the sufficiency of his love. He will give you what you need in life. We see the stability of his love, that he is always going to love you regardless of the charge. And we see the security of his love, that you are safe in him. But here's the last one. We get to the last step now. And when we get to this last step, we get to see the beauty of everything that Paul ties together. What does he say? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This speaks to the steadfastness of God's love for us. He is steadfast in his love. And there will be nothing that will ever cause him to not love us. Nothing. Now, I want you to notice how this statement is. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It doesn't ask, who shall separate me from my love for Jesus? That's not what it's saying. Why? Because we know that our love for Jesus can be disrupted. We know that there can be situations that come in my life that disrupt my faithfulness or disrupt my obedience or disrupt my love. We all have that. But when it comes to Jesus, there's nothing that will disrupt his love for you. If you're his child, there's nothing. And he breaks it down into a couple of categories here. First of all, adversities shall never disrupt his love for you. Tribulation will not disrupt his love. Distress, emotional distress, all kinds of difficulties, maybe with depression and anxiety and struggles and doubts, none of those things would disrupt his love for you. Persecution will not, famine or nakedness, which means in your life will never disrupt his love. The second one are ad ad adversaries. These are people who are against you. Danger refers to things that can happen because of situations with people. The sword usually relates to execution and death and murder. Those things will never separate and disrupt God's love for you. And then in verse 36, Paul says this, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why would Paul write that right in the middle? Here's what Paul wants you to know, wants me to know. Everything he said is not theoretical. It's not some pie in the sky kind of thing. It's not secondhand knowledge that Paul is talking about. He is talking about reality. He understands what it means to go through difficult times. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, he tells us what he went through. Far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, 
and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from all other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. You hear what Paul is saying? See, I've been through it. I know. And God's love is not only sufficient in all of these things, but steadfast. Then in verses 37 through 39, he wraps it up. He says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. The word in the Greek means a super conqueror. This is a person who not only overcomes, but turns the tables that was set against him or her, and God uses it for their good and for God's glory. That's the picture through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you get the picture of how deeply God loves you? Do you see that in all of these things, We do not have to just muddle our way through life. I love the way Tony Morita puts it in his commentary. He says, we are victors and overcomers, and we have the ever-present love of Christ holding us, our Heavenly Father working for us, and the Holy Spirit indwelling and empowering us. This kind of gospel-centered assurance will enable us not just to survive, but to thrive in our walk with Jesus. Believer, listen to me. He loves you more than anyone else. And because of the investment of his son in your life, he will never disown you. He is for you. He is with you. He sustains you. His love is stable. You are secure. And the steadfastness of his love is with you every single day. Kent Hughes tells a story of John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom was was an early church father in the 4th century A.D., He was a great preacher. He was a theologian. And at one point, he stood before the emperor of Rome. And this is how the story goes. When Chrysostom was brought before the Roman Empire, the emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. John replied, you cannot banish me, for this whole world is my father's house. But I will slay you, said the emperor, No, you cannot, for my life is hidden with Christ for eternity. I will take away your treasures, replies the emperor. No, but you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from man and you shall have no friend left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven for whom you cannot separate me from. I defy you, for there is nothing that you can do to hurt me. That's a man who understood Romans 8. That's a believer who came to understand that in Christ, we are completely invincible to the things of this world. There's nothing that can hurt you because your father is for you. 
He has counted you as righteous and you belong to him. You have the significance of God's love, the sufficiency of his love, the stability of his love, the security of his love, and the steadfastness of his love. So what does that mean? How do we apply this? Let me give you four things to apply this week as you consider Romans 8. Number one, allow these truths to drive you to worship God. The result should be that of worship. I mean, when I realize how deeply God loves me and how unfaithful I am to him, and yet he never changes, it should cause me to fall before him in absolute worship, in awe, and in amazement. Here's the second thing. Allow these truths to encourage you in times of discouragement. The world's going to discourage you. Your flesh will discourage you. The devil will discourage you. And in the midst of all that, people will come and say, oh, you can't be a believer. Oh, you can lose your salvation. Are you certain that you're saved? And in the midst of all of this, God brings us to the place of the security that we have in him. Let that encourage you no matter what you're going through. Thirdly, allow these truths to remind you that you need a faith community to walk with you. In every one of these questions, the questions are not singular and they are plural. For God is for us. What can separate us? And all through this passage, it's speaking of us as a body. You're not the only one going through the struggles you have. You're not the only one questioning and doubting, maybe even your own love for God. There are others. And when we see the importance of a faith family and we come together in this and lean into one another, not only do we have the love of God, but we have the love of the brothers and sisters in Christ who are urging us on. And lastly, allow these truths to challenge you to live on mission for Jesus. To take these truths that you learn and to share them with your children, to share them with your family, to share them with coworkers, to share them in a marketplace, to take every opportunity to tell other people, let me tell you how much God loves you. Now, everything I shared with you this morning is for the believer. This is what we have in Christ. Believer, you are free. And you should walk with the unbelievable joy of the love of God. You will stand before him one day and there will be no condemnation. You will never have to fear being judged by God. You will give an account for what you've done. But you are not condemned. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, maybe you've been coming for a while, you've been listening for a while, and you've been thinking of all of these things, but you've never surrendered your life to Christ. Let me tell you, this is what you can have in Christ, but it's not what you currently have. Because when you take your last breath, there will be condemnation. There will be wrath. There will be separation. There will not be the love of a father, but there will be the wrath of a judge. And it will be eternal. And what God wants you to know today is his love for you is available. And it only is through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And if you would yield, if you would surrender, if you would send up the white flag and just say, I can't do this anymore. Some of you have been listening to the gospel for some time now. You've been contemplating it and God is saying it's time for you to quit thinking about it. It's time to surrender. And God is calling you to send the white flag up and surrender your life to him today. And my friend, what you will experience will be the incredible love of God for all of eternity. So I would plead with you today to consider Christ and to surrender to him, even this morning. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer for here and the Cross Point Center. Will you join me as we pray together? Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the depth of your love. Thank you for the richness of your love. And Father, your word says that we love you because you first loved us. And Father, I pray that you would set believers free today, that we would not walk in the guilt and the shame that the enemy wants us to walk in, but we would walk in the joy and the freedom that your spirit wants us to walk in. And Father, we would walk freely. Father, for those who are without Christ, I pray this morning that there would be such an urgency of their heart that they can't even leave here without surrendering their lives to Christ. If that is you this morning and you're here or you're listening to my voice in the Crosspoint Center or online and you know that this is the time that God is calling you to surrender, I want you to just pray this prayer to yourself. Just pray it in your heart and your mind. Just say, dear God, I am a sinner and I see today how much you love me and I see today the gift that you've given me in Jesus. And right now, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus is your son. I believe he is the only means for me to be right with you. And I yield my life to you. I trust you completely. Forgive me of my sins. Give me eternal life. And as I turn from my sins, I turn to you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.